So find your way to the very end of John chapter 15. We'll actually be bridging the end of chapter 15, going over to the beginning of chapter 16. You do understand that the chapter divisions are not inspired. They came along much later. And um, oftentimes they're helpful. Sometimes they're not. This is a not. Um, and so we're going to, to, to bridge between them. And so uh, as you find your way there, let's ask the Lord's help again. And, O Father, we do thank You that in the midst of a very dark world there are shafts of light that break through. We would consider this past week's verdict from the Supreme Court a a little splash of sanity and light in the midst of darkness. For that, we praise You. We praise You for that. But we also ask, Lord, that You would help us to double down not just in opposition to the great evil of abortion, but also to double down in compassion for those women, for those individuals trapped, who feel trapped, who've been lied to, who surrender their bodies and the bodies of their children and think they're doing the right thing. For those right now, Lord, who are, who are very angry and upset and who believe they are standing for something good when in fact they're standing for something very evil, That's the moral confusion of this world. And as we prayed earlier, that's the confusion we were a part of, if not on this issue, other issues. Sin perverts and twists the mind. Sin in itself is a violence and leads to spiritual, physical, every kind of violence and wickedness. And we were parties to that wickedness. Would still be parties to that wickedness had you left us in our state. And You rescued us and You called us out of darkness into light and made us Your own. Oh God, help us in the midst of a dark world to live as agents of Your light. To live with Your compassion in the midst of anger and frustration. To live with Your grace in the midst of so much that is the opposite of grace. To walk in Your light no matter how great the dark. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to be beginning actually in verse 25, but I'm going to back up and read verse 18 of chapter 15 of John just to sort of set us again in the context from a couple of weeks ago. And so Jesus begins a new section in verse 18 and says, If the world hates you with the implication, and it does, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled... They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you. So ends the reading of God's Word. So why is Jesus telling us these things? Why is He warning us last time and this time that The world will hate us for loving Him. Well, He's telling us all of this 
so that when the time comes, and it is coming, that we will not fall away. Verse 1. Because falling away is exactly what you're going to be tempted to do. Do you understand that about yourself? When painful pressure comes, our natural reaction is to want to get away from it. You get a headache, you take a Tylenol or whatever your preference is. Maybe some of you it's a dab of oil somewhere. Someone presses up against you. You step back. It's our natural reaction. And in the same way, as the world's opposition against us increases because of our loyalty to Christ, so will our temptation to back away, to run, to hide, to give up, to give in, to compromise. If we're going to stand firm in faith in a world of opposition, we're going to need some help. And help is exactly what Jesus is promising us here. So let's just begin there. Uh, First point this morning, Jesus promised us there'd be opposition, but also that we will have help in facing that opposition. So first of all, the reminder, there will be opposition. This is what we were looking at last time. John 15, 18-21. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And remember, the reason Jesus is telling us these things is not so that we'll be scared, but so we'll be prepared. 1 John 3.13 Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So there's going to be opposition. If you're loyal to Jesus, you're going to face pressure from this world. Jesus told us, will tell us that again in John 16.33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation. And that word means trouble. It means pressure coming in from every side. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And so as opposition to Christ intensifies, as it's doing today, we should take heart in the fact that there's nothing odd about this or unexpected or something we shouldn't have anticipated. Jesus tells us, in fact, that we must anticipate it. He's told us that, that, that these kind of things in these days would be coming. He's, he's told us that we must be ready for them. He's told us that so when it comes, we'll be ready for the help He's going to send. And so there's the second thing. He told His disciples opposition is coming, but we will never have to face it alone. Now, do you see how these two go together in this passage? So, so yes, first of all, there will be opposition, verse 18 to 25, but Jesus says, I'm going to send you help. Verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. There's a Helper. Now, who is this Helper? The one who's coming to our aid. The one, the one who's going to stand with us. The one who's going to give us strength and point us back to Jesus. Who is this helper? Well, you know the answer already, right? 
This is the third time, in fact, Jesus has mentioned the Holy Spirit using this same name. The helper uh, or the paraclete is the word in Greek. It, it means it means the counselor, the comforter, the advocate, the, the one who comes to help in time of need. A paraclete is a friend who comes to stand by your side when you're in trouble. Uh, who, who comes and, and gives you the strength that you need or offers you the wise counsel that you crave so, so that rather than crumbling under the pressure, you are equipped to stand. And that's who the Holy Spirit is to us. He is our heavenly friend in time of need, sent by Jesus from the Father's side to help us and strengthen us so that indeed we are ready to stand when all around we feel like giving way. That's who the Holy Spirit is. Let me tell you, that's someone I want to know, don't you? I want to know more about Him. I want to know how to rely upon Him. And so let's look what Jesus tells us here. He gives us four things about this helper, this paraclete, this, this Holy Spirit. First of all, He tells us about His identity. Who is He? We've already seen that He is the paraclete. He's our friend in time of need. But, but notice what else He calls Him here. He calls Him the Spirit of truth. The true Spirit. The faithful Spirit. Now, Again, we've heard Him called this before. Back in John 14, 16-17, Jesus made a similar promise. He said, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you, and He will be in you. And so he's talking here, the Spirit of Truth, the Paraclete, he's talking about the one we know elsewhere in Scripture as the Holy Spirit. And so we're not talking about a force or energy or power sent down from heaven to help us, but the very person of God Himself coming to be present with us as our helper. So not just help, but a helper. He is the Spirit of God, as you know. God the Spirit, third person of the Holy Trinity, he is as fully God as Christ is God, as fully God as the Father is God. God Himself, in His very essence, come to dwell within us and strengthen us and establish us in the truth. What a mighty help He is indeed. Second, He reminds us for our comfort of the Spirit's origin. Where does He come from, this help of ours? We'll read it again. But when the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. So where does He come from? Quite literally, the words He uses say, from beside the Father, from, from right next to the Father, from the Father's side. That is, directly from the Father's presence, He comes to us. And so just as Jesus the Son came to us directly from the Father's presence through the womb of Mary in the Incarnation. So now the Holy Spirit comes to us directly from the Father's presence by the promise of Jesus to send Him, beginning at Pentecost, but now, but now throughout, at every conversion, when you come to Christ, the Spirit comes to you. Now, some struggle here with what they perceive to be a contradiction between this verse, I will send the Spirit, and John 14.26 where the Father sends the Spirit. 
And so here Jesus says, I will send the Spirit. But in John 14, 26, He says, the Father will send the Spirit in My name. And these folks look at that and they say, well, that's a problem. Who does the sending? Does the Father do the sending or does the Son do the sending? And in fact, not to get into the weeds, because we could very quickly, (laughs) uh, this has been a major focus of controversy throughout church history. In fact, in 1054 uh, A.D., there was a major split between Roman Catholicism or or the Western Church over here and the Eastern Orthodox Church over a similar question. Uh, Does the Spirit proceed from the Father or from the Father and the Son? We're not going to go into those weeds. Because it's really not necessary because it misses the point entirely. But think about this. So think about the answer. Is it the Father sending or is it the Son sending? One verse says one thing, one verse says the other. How do we solve this? Well, think about it. Think hard about it. I remind you that theology and truth require us to think, dear Christian. If you are not thinking about your faith, you are not being a faithful Christian. It requires thought. And and so here we must think in terms of the Trinity. Never forget about the Trinity. That's the very core of your faith. And very often it's the key in situations like this. And so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, existing eternally as three persons. One God, three persons who are as God, always in complete agreement and harmony in all of their actions, always with one another and assisting one another and supporting one another in every action they take as the one God. So the Son asks the Father to send the Spirit. And the Father delights to send Him in the Son's name so that both the Father and the Son are the senders. There is no knife sharp enough to cut that division. The Father sins, the Son sins, and the Spirit, for His part, oh, He is glad to be sent. He comes willingly, He comes joyfully to help us. Understand that, dear one. He wants to come to you and be your helper. Third, so He comes from the Father's side, sent by the Son, sent by the Father to be our helper. Third, Jesus reminds us here again that as God, the Spirit is indeed a person, indeed the very person of God. In other words, He's a He. He's a someone. Uh, Not to get too technical here, but look at the end of verse 26 where it says, He will bear witness about Me. Now we've seen this before in John, but as John is writing this, he has a, a choice to make about how he puts it. Good Greek grammar would require John to use a neuter pronoun, it, with reference to the spirit, because in Greek the word spirit, pneuma, is a neuter noun. As you know, many languages, English isn't one of them, but in many languages nouns have a gender. They're male, female, or neuter, and spirit is gender neuter. It should require the pronoun it. So that's what John should do. He should say, It will bear witness about me, but interestingly, he can't bring himself to do that. Because he knows that could easily lead someone to conclude that the Spirit is less than a person, that the Spirit is merely a power or a force, as some wrongly believe. And so John, in violation of good Greek grammar, uses the masculine pronoun he in an emphatic way with reference to the Spirit so that you and I can be clear about this. We are talking about a person, not just any person, but the very person of God, the Holy Spirit, coming as our help in time of need. So what's the point? Jesus doesn't just send you help. He sends you the Helper. God the Spirit come to your aid to make you ready and equipped and prepared so that when the pressure comes, you will indeed be able to stand. Christian, you can stand. 
And indeed you must. Fourth, Jesus tells us about the Spirit's mission. So what's He coming to do? We'll look at the end of verse 26. It says that when He comes, when He proceeds to us from the Father's side, He will bear witness about Me. In other words, He'll point you to Me, Jesus says. He'll remind you about Me. He'll make sure you remember Me. So what is it you need more than anything else when you're tempted to cave in to the pressure of the world around you? You need to remember who Jesus is. You need to remember what Jesus has done for you. You need to remember what Jesus has promised to those who trust Him. Until the Holy Spirit comes to remind you. He comes to whisper these truths into your ear and to confirm them to your soul. Romans 8 verse 16 uh, says the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. He's not there to call attention to Himself. He's not there to say, hey, looky at me. He comes to help you fix your eyes on Jesus so that through Christ you are equipped to stand. Again, John 16 verse 14. Jesus says, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify Me, for He'll take what is Mine, all of My promises, all of My actions, and He'll declare it to you. He'll remind you who I am. So the the Holy Spirit helps us by anchoring us more firmly to Christ, by, by strengthening our faith in Christ, so that we are equipped to stand firm against whatever pressure the world may throw against us, so that we can do what? Equipping us for what purpose? Well, that's verse 27. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. So so look at these things. Look what this is saying. As the Holy Spirit bears witness to us and strengthens our faith, what are we equipped to do? We are equipped to bear witness to them, that is to this hostile world we're going to be talking about, so that they also may be brought to faith in Christ. Again, look how it connects. He will bear witness about me, into verse 26, verse 27, and you also will bear witness. So two important things here. First of all, dear Christian, you and I are called and equipped by the Holy Spirit's presence to bear witness of Christ in this hostile world. Right? Romans, I mean, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, just as the church is launched on its mission, what does Jesus say? you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to do what? To be My witnesses. And it is no coincidence that that word witness is the Greek word martis, from which we take our word martyr. Martis, martyr, what is a martyr? A martyr is someone whose witness costs them very dearly, even to the point of costing their life. And we make that connection between the word witness in Greek and and our word martyr, because in the early church, it it became such a regular thing that bearing witness to Christ could cost, cost people everything, could lead to their deaths, that the word took on this meaning, martyr, witness. You do understand that one of our goals as a Christian, it's easy to lose sight of this, one of our goals as a church is to raise up martyrs. To prepare people to be martyrs. Men and women, young people, so full of Christ, so certain of Christ, so zealous for Christ, that they're willing to pay any price in order to be faithful to Christ. Is that you, dear one? Is it me? 
Second thing in verse 27, we're also assured here that we can stand firm because we have a faithful witness upon which to stand. Listen again to verse 27 as he addresses the the disciples particularly. He says, And you also will bear witness when the Holy Spirit comes because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, who's he talking to with that last phrase? Well, he's talking to the disciples themselves. Initially, those who quite literally had been with him from the very beginning of his earthly ministry. Now, think why that's important. Think of the implications here. This gospel that we hold to that now sets us apart from the world around us, this gospel is not mere hearsay, not a story somebody made up in a corner and began to spread. This gospel is the word of truth, not only from the Holy Spirit, but through these men who were there. And now they are being promised the help of the Holy Spirit to confirm and safeguard that witness as it comes down to us. John fourteen twenty six. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and, speaking to the disciples, bring to your remembrance all that I've said. He'll safeguard the message. And so applying that, here we have a place to stand, dear church. We have an assured word from God that is spiritually impaired, empowered by the Holy Spirit to give us true truth, as Francis Schaeffer used to say. We've got the word of the apostles who were there, made sure to us in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can stand upon this word. We can know that we have a sure and accurate word from God. Truth that will not fail. And that's the assurance made here. The Holy Spirit has confirmed their witness to bring us the assurance of truth and it is upon this truth that we must be willing to stand as we face the onslaught and the lies and the deception of the lost world around us. It is this very truth upon which we stand that the world wants to wrestle out of your hands. So that brings us into this next thing. Jesus not only promises help to stand against the railings of this world, but second of all, notice, Jesus warned us that we'd be tempted to give up and fall away in the face of growing opposition. Chapter 16, 1-3, He says, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. So again, why is Jesus telling us this? What did He say in verse 1? To keep us from falling away. That's the temptation that you face, especially those of you who are younger, those who who are here and more likely to be influenced by this world, more you're still your personality, your your loves, your passions are still taking shape. You're more influenceable. You're, you're more likely to be to, to 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 want to fit in, so so as not to not not to have to face the the the, the back the backlash. It's one of the reasons we're seeing this rash of defections from the faith this past few years. People deconstructing their faith and walking away. I mean, think about it. Is that happening because new evidence has come to life that really disproves the Christian faith, right? You know, they found the body of Jesus moldering in some tomb. Is that why this is happening? Well, no. There's not new evidence. We're facing this because all of a sudden being known publicly as a Christian in this culture no longer carries the social benefit that it once carried. In fact, just the opposite. It now comes at an increasingly high cost socially. 
secular people around you no longer hear that you're a Bible-believing Christian and think, oh, you're probably a really nice guy or gal. Now they hear that and they think, you're probably one of those narrow-minded, homophobic, religious bigots who wants to take abortion away from women who need it. That's the shift that's taken place in our culture. And I know it's taken a little longer to get to Missouri than in places like New York and L.A., but it's, but it's here. So here's what's happening. As we move more and more into a place where being known as a Christian carries no longer any benefit, but instead comes at a cost, as we begin to see that, two things begin to happen. First of all, those who are merely nominal in their faith and were identified with Christ for the benefit they perceived it brought them, they very quickly fall away. And that's what we're seeing. Nominalism dies when there is pressure upon those who believe. Second, those who do belong to Christ but are not firmly grounded in their faith are strongly tempted to pull away. Maybe, maybe you this morning. And the more the world around you puts pressure on you because of your allegiance to Christ, the more tempted you're going to be to walk away or at the very least keep your head down and your mouth shut, right? You felt that. Look at these words falling away in verse 1. It's one word in the Greek, the word skandalizo. It's where we get our word scandal. It's the idea of being offended by something, of stumbling over something so that you lose your way and fall off the path. It's the same word that Jesus used in the parable of the soils in places like Mark 4 when He warns that some of the ones who appeared to be Christians at first, when they heard the word, they immediately received it with joy. There appeared to be a conversion, but they have no root in themselves, but endure only for a little while. Then when tribulation and persecution arise on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And so to scandalize in this sense is to fall away because of the world's opposition to Christ and His Word. And Jesus says, I'm warning you about this now so that when that pressure to scandalize comes, you won't give in to it. To be forewarned is to be forearmed, as they say. And to know what is coming is to be prepared to face it. Jesus is warning you here that you must be prepared. Okay, prepared for what? Well, He tells us two things to look for here in verse 2. First, He tells us that Christians will be ostracized from the culture around them because of their allegiance to Christ. Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Now, of course, the synagogue was the Jewish place of worship, but the word synagogue itself simply means a gathering place. And in Jewish communities... This is what the synagogue was. It wasn't just a place of worship. It was the center of the Jewish community. And so to be cast out of the synagogue was to be an outcast in the eyes of the community around you. People wouldn't do business with you anymore. They wouldn't hire you anymore. They refused to socialize you. They would, they would cut you off and shut you out of polite society. That kind of thing was already happening. Even as Jesus speaks this warning, do you remember what we saw back in John 12, verse 42? It says that, that, that several even of the leaders had come to put their faith in Christ, but out of fear of the Pharisees, they refused to confess it publicly so they wouldn't be put out of the synagogues. Now, 
you and me this morning, I doubt we're very worried about being put out of the synagogue. I'm not even sure where the closest synagogue is. But think instead of our cultural gathering places. Because that's really what we're talking about here. You speak the truth of Christ in a lot of places to get today, and of course you get canceled. Amy and I were at Harvard in Boston this past week, just as we were visiting in that area, and we went and saw the campus, beautiful, beautiful campus, founded by Puritans to teach the Bible so there would always be a faithful ministry. That's actually written on one of the gates. I've got a picture if you want to see it after the church. But you try to go there now and proclaim biblical truth regarding gender and sexuality and the need for Christ, and you'll be shut down. You'll be canceled, as several conservative speakers have found out over the last couple of years there on other, co- on other college campuses. Just this past week, Chris Evans, the actor Chris Evans, who I really like his Captain America thing, but... Chris Evans was talking about the opposition that many conservatives have against Disney's new animated film, Lightyear, because of its blatant depiction of a lesbian relationship and a same-sex kiss. And speaking of that, he said this in an interview, those people are idiots. He's talking about you, by the way. They're dinosaurs who need to die off. They should be disregarded. Disregarded, shut down. Cancel. And more and more, that's just where we are in the culture. We, get, we need to get used to it. In fact, I believe we're quickly reaching a place where no faithful Christian will be able to avoid that happening. You will be called out. Even as you speak the truth in love, and remember, you must always speak the truth in love. Even as you speak in love, you'll be canceled, marginalized, rejected because of your faithfulness. And guess what? Blessed are you when it happens. But then second, he goes on to say, some will even think silencing you as a believer and killing believers is a good thing. Jesus continues in verse 2. He says, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. The hour is coming, he says. And indeed, it came very quickly. By the time we get to Acts chapter 7, it has in fact already begun, right? Turn there, Acts 7, Acts 8. There we read of Stephen, a deacon by the way, since we just ordained some deacons. A deacon that we're told was a man full of grace and power. A man whose life was filled with Jesus and His grace. I mean, who could have anything against a man like that? But when Stephen went and spoke the gospel clearly to the synagogue of the freedmen in Jerusalem, they didn't like it one bit. They hauled him before the authorities there in Jerusalem. And before the morning was over, Stephen's blood ran in the streets. One of those standing there giving their full approval to his death was a young man named Saul. We're told that they cast Stephen out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he, he died. He fell asleep. And Saul approved of his education. I'm not his education. Where'd that come from? Saul approved of his execution. 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul gave hearty approval to Stephen's death. Thumbs up! He thought that doing Stephen in was a good thing. Looking back on this years later after he himself had become a Christian, Saul, now calling himself Paul, you know him as the Apostle Paul, said in verse 26, I had convinced myself I ought to do many such things in order to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He thought killing Stephen was a good thing, a necessary action in service to God, a good deed for the greater good. It's interesting, the word John, or actually Jesus, uses for service to God. Here's actually where we get our word liturgy. It means a service of worship. It means doing that which pleases God. (laughs) People can become so deluded in their opposition to the truth that they begin to think that harming others is actually a good thing. And the further our culture moves in the direction of moral insanity, where good becomes evil and evil becomes good, the more people will be willing to do terrible things in the name of the social good or social justice or or, or that which benefits society in general. Now, how far that will go in your lifetime, I can't tell you. I'm not a prophet. And nor am I an alarmist. And by the way, neither should you be. And so I'm not calling you to head for the hills. In fact, I'm convinced we must not head for the hills. We have to be here to bear witness. And I'm not saying, but what I am saying, what I am saying is to be forewarned is to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Know that whatever opposition arises against us is in the hands of God. And that whatever opposition arises, we must be prepared not to flee and let the world rot, but to stand firm on Christ's truth, knowing we have His help. And frankly, let's be very honest, most of this still remains quite potential for us. Nobody's coming to your house tonight to drag you into the streets. But you understand that we have brothers and sisters all over this world in places like China, North Korea, parts of Africa and the Middle East for whom that is a present reality. That that for whom to speak openly of Christ can indeed lead to a death sentence. You understand that there are places in this world where where that's happening. In fact, more have died for Christ in the last century than in the first 19 centuries before. And and so to begin with, pray for them. Pray for those who are facing blatant persecution that they'll have strength to stand and then prepare your own heart to stand in whatever shape opposition comes to you. Which brings me quickly to the last thing. and It is just quickly. When times of persecution do come then, Jesus reminds us to keep looking to Him. Chapter 16, verse 3 again, they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor Me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. They will do these things, Jesus says. Why? Because they don't know the Father nor me. Listen, 
we must not be surprised when those who imagine a godless world act in godless ways. Uh, a new Gallup poll just out a couple of weeks ago, in fact, says that we've, in America we've reached the point of having the greatest percentage of unbelief in God that we've ever had in our history. So we're definitely trending in that direction. And if your worldview says there is no God to be accountable to, no ultimate truth to hold to, no final right and wrong by which you will be judged, if that's what your worldview says, sooner or later someone will come to the conclusion, well then we can do whatever we want with those people who oppose us. The people who are in our way of progress, these people who have taken a stance against what we are convinced is the public good, they will have to go. And that's the logic that drove Soviet Russia, for instance, Cuba, Venezuela, still drives today North Korea, China, etc. And so listen, you and I can be very grateful this morning that people by and large are not consistent in the way they apply their moral philosophy. What I mean by that is, there are lots and lots of people out there who believe some really bad and dangerous things, but by the grace of God, they don't act on them. There are many in this culture who've bought the lie of a godless universe, but they still don't act in a truly godless anarchy. And we can praise God for that fact, because the imago Dei, the image of God, still exists and still restrains much that bad philosophy would produce. And yet, back to this point, we must not be surprised when people who think they live in a godless world act in godless ways. We shouldn't be surprised. Instead, we must be ready to face whatever affliction God may choose to allow. To hold fast to Christ, to believe in His promises, to encourage each other daily to stand firm in His truth. So let me go back to the question I began with. Why is Jesus telling you these things? Why am I having to preach this this morning? I mean, one of the wonderful things about going verse by verse is I didn't just come up with this because, oh, let's talk about this. Why did Jesus want you to hear this? So you live in fear? Well, no. Remember what He said, take heart, I've overcome the world. Well, so you would live in suspicion. You know, withdrawing from your neighbors into your house, refusing to trust those outsiders. No. We've got to get to know them and love them and share our lives with them if we're going to share our faith with them. So why did He tell us this? Why did He tell us this? So that we will remember whose we are and what He's promised so that when that day comes, we will not fall away. Again, verse 4, But I've said these things to you, so that when their hour comes, notice that, they get an hour. And God gives them that hour. This is not a matter of, oh, they won, they they out-tricked God, history's marched in their direction. No, God says, for an hour I'm going to let you do this. When their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you, And you won't fall away is the implication. And so we must remember. Do you understand a big part of the Christian faith is remembering Christ. Clinging to His Word. Remembering His faithful promises. And one of the ways that we remember Him is by the regular observance of the Lord's Supper. And so let's 
Turn there now. The Lord's Supper. Church, listen, as we think about these things, and and I I read a passage like this, and I, I try to think it through, and how we apply it in our present time, where we don't know tomorrow. We don't know if God may decide to send a great revival, or God may decide to send a great persecution. It's in His hands. But here's what I do know. God has not given us a spirit of fear, or suspicion, or isolation. He hasn't called us to go hide in some commune while the world rots around us. He's called us to be salt and light. To stand and speak truth in love to those who hate the truth. And He's given us the strength to do that through our daily faith in Christ and through the living presence of the Holy Spirit. Oh, don't forget about Him. And so let's think about that as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Think of His promises. I will never leave you or forsake you. He says in Hebrews 13.5 to a church undergoing blatant persecution. In fact, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Great Commission, Matthew 28. I'll give you the strength that you need. I'll give you the courage to stand when the time comes. I'll never leave you. Whatever comes, I'll be with you. Church, that's the promise of Jesus. And oh, by the way, there's hundreds and hundreds more like that in this book. You ought to get to know them. You ought to memorize them in case they ever take the book away from you. So how are you being tempted to fall away today? How are you being tempted to step back from Christ? To mute your witness? To keep your head down? What have you forgotten about His promises and His faithfulness that you need to stand on? Remember. That's the point. And the Lord's Supper is given to remind us of these things. To remind us of Christ. Brothers, you can go ahead and come forward as we prepare to take this supper. To remind us of Christ who died in our place and ever lives to intercede for us. To remind us of Christ who is risen from the dead and seated right now at the Father's right hand. To remind us of Christ who faithful to His promise has sent the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, who dwells in us and among us this morning. To remind us of Christ who will soon return in a blaze of glory and every eye will see Him on that day and we will be with Him forever. Dear one, let that strengthen your faith as we celebrate this supper. And so I'm going to to distribute this, but I want you, as you're sitting there, as you're holding the cup and the wafer, I want you to be thinking about Christ. I want you to think about His promises. I want you to think about His assurances. I want you to think of His power and His coming. I want you to think of of why these things matter and how they should give you strength and stability to stand and to not give way no matter what happens in the culture. I think what happens is, and I'll, I'll shut up at this, we'll take the Lord's Supper, but I think what happens is this, at least to me, maybe you, I think what happens is, we get so disturbed by what's going on in the culture around us that we get our eyes fixed on the culture wondering what's coming next when we need to be getting our eyes fixed on Jesus who is coming next. (laughs) And seeing and savoring and believing and trusting Him so that whatever is coming next, we're going to stand. And this supper is given to remind you who He is. And so let's 
Take the cup, the wafer, and we'll celebrate afterwards. I want to paraphrase an old prayer I found in an old book of prayer. And, um, well, let's pray. Father, Father, You've taught the hearts of Your faithful people to stand by sending us the light of Your Holy Spirit to light our way. Would You grant us by that same Spirit to have, to have wise judgment about the things that are happening around us, indeed about all things, and to rejoice in the comforting presence of Your Holy Spirit through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ our Savior who lives and reigns with You in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. So don't be scared, but be prepared. And be prepared by standing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. On the night that He was betrayed, Paul says, He took the bread representing the broken body of Jesus in our place. And Jesus said, Take this and eat it, each one of you, in remembrance of Me. The same way He took the cup, the cup of blessing in His name, and He said, do this. This is the new covenant. This is, this is your assurance of salvation, not in yourself, but in Me and My finished work. Do this in remembrance of Me. And Jesus, with that, we remember. We remember not only are You our Savior who has died and risen again, but You are our Savior who reigns even now, who is returning and who will reign forever and ever. Kingdoms, the kingdoms of darkness, the kingdoms of this world, they shall not stand. They may have their hour, but you will have eternity. And so would you teach our hearts to rest firmly and completely and you come what may, whatever it is you ordain for us, Lord, this week and the next, the next after that, whatever troubles and struggles, uh, whether, uh, whether of the kind we've read about this morning or just the regular routine of life in a broken world, would you give us eyes to see and rely upon and trust Christ day in and day out, come what may, that we might ever live to the praise of the glory of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.